Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Nico Mullally's Frameworks DH race bike program has been one of the cooler things to be happening on the World Cup circuit for the last couple of seasons, and he's just opened up pre-orders for the production version of his bike. So we brought Nico back on the podcast to talk about everything he's been up to with that project, including the vast array of material and frame designs he's been experimenting with over the last while, the details of the production bike that you can go pre-order right now, how he's planning to manage production and when frames are going to be delivered, and a whole lot more. Nico has obviously put an immense amount of thought and testing into developing these bikes, and he's got some really good stuff to say about what has worked and, frankly, not worked all that great in some of the earlier iterations, including his experimentations with steel front triangle, the new carbon fiber rear end he's worked on, and a whole lot more. It's a pretty cool conversation with a lot of information about a very interesting bike that Nico's put together, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So, without any further ado, here is Nico Malawi on his Frameworks DH race bike and a whole bunch more. Well, Nico, great to sit down and chat bikes again. How are you doing and where are you at this morning? Yeah, good to see you too, man. Um, I'm doing well. I'm at my house in North Carolina. Uh, wrapped up the season about three weeks ago, so... Um, yeah, it's off season time, which is like now as I guess I'm a team owner, it's busy time to try to set stuff up for next year. And then, um, yeah, never, never stop working on the bikes too. So I've been riding every week since, since then, uh, still messing around with the bikes. Yep. And well, yeah, we'll get a lot deeper into that in a few here, but Kind of wanted to have you on for, again, for a few reasons. Uh, first and foremost amongst them that you've just opened up uh, orders for the DH bike for sale. So um, been kind of following along and you've been on a couple times to chat about the Frameworks project over the last few years. And um, well, bikes are for sale now. So tell us about the version that you've gone forward with to sell and kind of what the story is with that order yeah that's exciting um i I didn't i definitely didn't start this intending to try to sell bikes uh we kind of naturally arrived there um slowly we like refined and refined the bike that i was racing and started to scale up the amount of frames we were making just to have spares um we had some other kids in the area riding the frames just to get some other data points on them. And as as we started to like scale up making batches of, I think at one point we had like 18 of them at a time in the, in the heat treat basket, it was like, well, if we're doing it at this scale and we have the tooling, like this is what the batch would kind of be like, that's as many as we could fit in the basket for heat treat. So, uh, obviously we'd weld more and go with like several batches in heat treat, but we were kind of like, man, we're like able to, this is what we would do for production anyway. So, um, a ton of people were always asking me about it and they they were stoked on it and 
maybe a little bit of like this, the fact that you just couldn't get one made them even more interested in it. But, um, I think they, a lot of people saw like all the videos and the, what was going into it. And, um, for some of those people, it like resonated with them, what the goals were for the ride quality. So, uh, yeah, we're going to open the pre-orders on November 8th. I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but that's, uh, yeah, Wednesday, November 8th. And, uh, we're going to deliver the frames then 90 days later. So we'll have a hundred spots that we can build. Uh, big goal is to get them delivered before the season starts. They, I mean, they're, they're race bikes. So the, the big market is, uh, amateur downhill racers. So the season starts in March and we really need to get the people here bikes before then. I, I've, uh, been on plenty of teams where it kind of comes down to the wire with that, uh, even as a pro. So we want to make sure that, uh, we can, you know, we can make these frames in 90 days and, uh, yeah, we're going to deliver them February 15th is the goal, uh, to ship them out. So the way it'll work is, um, yeah, people can place their pre-order. They, they pay 50%, um, when they pre-order the bike and it's fully refundable. If, if ever they decide to back out, we'll give them their money back and, uh, the next person in line will take their spot. Um, and yeah, we'll just, we, we can make up to a hundred and we'll make as many as people pre-order. So, um, it's exciting. It's coming up and I, and then to go a little bit more into the, the actual frame that we decided on, I think I've been through like 12 iterations of a very similar thing. Uh, it was funny. My, um, my girlfriend's uncle was over last night and he was here when I first got my first prototype frame, like pretty much right around two years ago from now and he was like asking me to see the new one and i was like well you someone who's not interested in in mountain bikes probably wouldn't really notice the difference between the two frames they look pretty much the same but there's a ton of little changes and like not all made at once either like get one ride it refine it get one ride it refine it and uh some of them along the way were drastically different like we re we went through some steel front triangles this season um we had a high pivot bike to start with and yeah tried pretty much all avenues that i thought might be a possibility tried to kind of leave no stone unturned um and then yeah i guess just refined minor pivot locations and more so in the end uh the 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 ease of construction and the ability to make them more perfectly, um, putting complexity into some of the CNC parts that we were using. Um, like I guess one simple example is when we started making the frames, the bottom bracket shell, the ISCG tab, the shock mount, um, the connection to the main pivot, and then the main pivot were five pieces and in our latest frames we cnc'd that all out of one piece and didn't need to bend the down tube because we were able to connect it to a straight down tube at the point that the bend would be and do you feel that when you're riding it uh no not if it was done perfectly when when it was fabricated but if they're easier to fabricate they're easier to fabricate perfectly and all the pivot locations are located off of the BB. And if they're all in one solid piece, then they can all be 
perfectly accurate. So, um, just little things like that. We've like come a long way with, um, I think the first frame that I had rode really well, maybe too well to where it convinced me to keep going. If it was terrible, I probably would have turned around sooner, but, uh, it, it rode really well down the trail and it was all the little things, the tolerances, the build quality, um, the cable routing, the hardware, like all that sort of things. The, the like last, uh, 2% that was the, took the most time to, to dial in after that. Like I was pretty, pretty good starting point with what I thought I wanted from my first frame as far as geometry and kinematics. Uh, it was just like all the little stuff that I had to learn along the way never actually building one before. Um, so the, the frames that will sell are the, the most refined version of that. They have, uh, a 6061 aluminum front triangle that's made by Frank, the welder in Vermont. Um, they have a 7075 machined like billet links made by five dev over in California. And the uh, rear triangle, the chain stay and seat stay are carbon fiber. Um, they're made by VIP composites in Asia. Uh, they're one of the biggest composite manufacturers, um, in, in the, in the world for mountain bikes. And, uh, from, from, from what I'm told, uh, from other people within the industry, they're the best non-exclusive vendor. So, um, there's some larger companies that have their own exclusive factories that, that only they use, but, uh, VIP is open um, to any brand and they, uh, apparently do the best job for, uh, a vendor like that. So, um, they're making those for us. And I think that gives us a, a really nice final product. I, I know I'm super stoked on the bike and I'm really stoked to share it with, with other people now. Yeah, right on. And it's certainly very cool to see them getting out in the wild and getting more people on them is, you know, neat that you've progressed to the point to be ready to offer that uh kind of curious to just talk a little more about some of the um kind of detail refinement and we'll get into some of the things about the various frame materials you've been experimenting with in a bit but in terms of geometry and suspension kinematics and that kind of stuff has that been relatively steady over the course of this last season from where you were at with kind of the maybe mid pivot would be the fair way to describe it version of the bike. And have you been changing much on that front or is it more just been refining construction details and that kind of stuff? Yeah. I've, I've kind of stuck with that like high mid, like high standard pivot height or mid pivot design. Uh, in the first frames that I made, I made kind of a, just an average standard pivot height bike and then a mid pivot that had an idler pulley, kind of like the lowest I could get, an idler between the chain ring and the, and the pulley wheel there. Um, and kind of landed on that they were splitting hairs. Uh, so I decided to go even further with splitting them and put it right in the middle. Um, really just going as high as I could with, uh, without using an idler pulley and taking advantage of being able to use an O chain mm -hmm. to, to kind of give that freer feeling as far as the, pedal kick or chain tensioning goes. Um, so I, I, I was pretty happy with that. It, another really nice thing about it is that your axle path from sag to like 110, 120 mil travel, um, 
it only changes like two millimeters. So it goes like backwards too, and then starts to arc forward. Um, and that gives a really consistent feel when you're, when you're cornering. I think it's like a big advantage to it is your rear center isn't changing as you're handling the bike. Like as we're using our data acquisition, we can see that that's where like you spend most of the time. Um, of course there's like bigger hits on the trail, but as far as like time spent in a downhill run, like that's the range of travel you're in and that's the range of travel when you're cornering. So it gives a really consistent feel with that kind of mid pivot layout. Um, so I didn't change that too much. I did, uh, you know, people look at a, a bike and they think that like all four bars are the same or, or all bikes of a certain layout are the same, but you move those pivots a fraction of a millimeter and they, they totally change the whole feel of the bike. So it's like kind of dialing in that perfect recipe. And I think I, I said last time, like you move one in a, in a direction that gives you something positive and something else go, gets a little bit worse. So you got to balance that all out. And, uh, as I learn more, I can kind of get more of those positives with, with, without as much trade-off. Um, so I definitely did move some things around. I think when I started, I had a perfectly consistent leverage rate leverage ratio so my um leverage ratio was a little bit more progressive on my first couple bikes like the ones i was racing in 2022 is 33 percent and the gradient was almost a straight line and coming into the project that's what i that's mm -hmm. what i thought i wanted like absolute consistency and i'm really glad that i started with that because it at least gave me a metric that i could compare to without, um, like it was, it was so consistent that you could tune the shock really well. Um, and you could feel every little change that you were making. And I think that's a really important thing. Um, but the more that I wrote it, the more data that we got, um, just logging on various racetracks, we, we'd log data on every world cup. And honestly, we didn't use it to change too much in the moment, but we'd use it to, to look back on and, and kind of see how the bike was working. And we were not really using all the travel that often. And, you know, a downhill bike has two, our bike had 200, has 205 mil of travel. So, um, I, I thought like the first half of the travel felt really good. And if we could get it to be a little bit more um like less force to bottom out not to that i wanted to use all the travel but in some of those bigger repetitive hits maybe the bike would absorb like a like a really big rock garden or a stair stepping section instead of the the bike not going th deeper into the travel because the force was too high if i could use that a little bit the bike would absorb that stuff and it would um go faster through it so we, in our frame that we erased this year, we, um, actually made, tried to keep the first half of the travel the same. And then the leverage ratio would taper off a little bit to be a little bit less progressive in the second half of the travel than it was in the first half of the travel. And if you look at a lot of bikes out there, they have some, some pretty wild hooks and mine definitely doesn't have any of that. It's, it's a somewhat minor change compared to the first one. Um, but it's something that gave me the 
more progressive in the first half of the travel allowed it to feel supple off the top, but give like at sag a really nice platform to where it didn't feel like it was going too low. And then in the second half of the travel on those bigger repetitive hits, the bike could absorb some of that, um, and still not bottom out too easily. So made some minor changes with, uh, the leverage ratio, which I think was a positive. And with, uh, the data on the bike this year, we could see that we were using, um, the travel that we had really, really nicely when we needed to. And, uh, we also made the anti-rise just a little bit higher. And I think it's interesting with that number, like a little bit goes a long way, like 10% change in anti-rise can be quite noticeable. So we were with, um, I guess the, uh, and it, uh, center of gravity is like a whole nother topic, but just for an apples to apples comparison, we we're using 620 from the BB as a center of gravity. And we were at like 60% starting and going down to like pretty consistent. It was only going down to like 40% at bottom out. Um, but it's really like in that zone where I explained that we ride most of the time from like sag to hundred 20 mil travel where, um, oh, as I explained with the axle path, that that's like the main range we're looking in. And we kind of bumped that whole, uh, curve up 10%. So we were at like, um, 70 from 60 starting and down to 50 instead of down to 40. And that, that gave a little bit more downforce. Um, like it would load the spring and the bike would squat a little bit little bit more under braking, but still not so much that it made the bike feel, um, like it was stiffening up. So, um, yeah, a couple little changes like that geometry really stayed the same. Um, we were working a lot with the chassis flex, um, this year we bumped up the tubing that we were using. So like, it's really nice to stick with stock round tubes cause they're super predictable and we can make changes. Like if, we could have put some of that CNC complexity that I explained into some hydroform tubes, but we'd kind of be stuck to those shapes. And, um, I like being able to change my mind with all this. And I think that got us to the point of having a super refined bike. I don't think I could have made 12 iterations if we were invested into tooling that kind of restricted us. So, um, yeah, using stock round tubes, we could, look at the stiffness of the tube, the strength of the tube and what the next jump up was. So we went from like a inch and three quarter down tube up to a two inch down tube. And we had an inch and a half top tube up to an inch and three quarter top tube. So we stepped them both up like one step and we actually made the wall thickness a little thinner, but the, the shape of the tube being a bigger circle just made it a bunch stronger. I think as any, anybody on this that's an engineer would pretty easily know. I, I, I found it interesting, but it makes a, a lot of sense if you have experience with this stuff. Um, so we bumped up that made the front triangle a little bit, uh, stiffer and, um, that worked really well with going to uh, carbon fiber rear end, which was actually a little bit softer. I think on our first bike, um, with the tubing that we just had access to, to start with the, the rear, the aluminum rear triangles that we had were super stiff and the front triangles were 
a little bit softer in comparison to that. So we kind of balanced the bike out from axle to axle a little better now using the composite rear end and the stiffer front triangle. And then I went through so many different designs on my rocker link to have a bridge, no bridge, um, a bridge that you could take out bridge behind the seat tube and then landed on like that. I love the feel of no bridge, but the links were moving independently of each other, which is bad for the shock. Uh, we were bending shock bolts. Um, so we put a bridge in front of the seat tube, which let it flex in the back end, um, the way that we wanted, but kept the links like in timing the same on both sides so that it was really consistent for the, for the shock. And of course that, that's really important when we're going into a production bike. Um, so that's kind of like the refinements that we went through this year and seemed like minor things, but it was like each one at a time on different frame iterations. And it, uh, I think landed us on a really nice spot. I'm super, super stoked with the bike we're racing now. Yeah, no, that's a really good rundown. And I think nicely illustrates that sort of is a big step from having a prototype bike that pretty much rides how you want it to maybe give or take some small tweaks, but then doing the last bits of refinement to have it dialed in and reliable enough to actually go sell to people's takes a bunch of doing. It's not, you know, that like 90% finished version to the hundred percent is takes a lot of effort still. And so I guess how close to the bike that you've been racing on for the last bit is the official production version and kind of how long have you been on something that's pretty much the same thing or sort of where along the timeline did you kind of make all those revisions that you were talking about? Yeah, we made um, all those revisions coming into this season. So um, anything that Asa was racing this year in 2023 or or I raced once I recovered from breaking my pelvis, um, for the second half of the year, uh, w would be almost identical to what we're going to sell. We, um, we did make a couple minor changes for the production frame that, um, Frank's actually shipping the samples out tomorrow and we'll have those to get the pictures for everybody. Um, that don't really change the ride quality, but, um, we worked with uh, Faction Bike Studio. They're uh, an engineering company in Quebec that um, is open to work with any brand for any support that they need with um, engineering their bikes. And they uh, are a super powerful company. Like the engineers they have are really good at doing the FEA, which is like what I've learned is so important on how it's done and what factors are considered when doing the FEA. And those guys are, are, are very good at doing it on bicycles and, um, especially aluminum bicycles. So they gave us a bunch of feedback on our frame and then tested it on their, um, machine in their lab based on some recordings that they did from me and Asa riding the bike. And, um, the bike actually lasted a lot longer than, than they thought it was going to based on their FEA. But, um, still there was like a couple of little hot spots, and it's crazy, dude. Like 
they suggested welding it less would make it stronger in certain areas. Um, we, we kind of learned that with the gussets that we had on our down tube and top tube, they were originally like a thumbnail gusset that sits on top of the top tube and on the bottom of the down tube as it joins the head tube. And Frank just welded all around them, closing the gap. And we had a couple of them crack in that area. And, um, somebody reached out to us that was building BMX bikes and suggested that if we don't weld across the tube, it would actually let it, um, flex a little more and kind of reduce a high stress hot spot where it goes from thick to thin really quickly, which, um, I, I never thought of, but made a ton of sense once he explained it. So we, we started doing that on our frames this year and that never had any issue after that. And, uh, we had a spot on our, I guess on like this four bar design where you use a rocker link, the, the main pivot, which is like where the chain stay connects to the mainframe above the bottom bracket. And then the rocker pit rocker to mainframe pivot, um, where the rocker link connects to the mainframe. Those two points are trying to like pull each other apart. Like the, the rocker link is, is going like, um, Northeast and the, the chain stays going like Southwest direction. Like they're like trying to rip each other and the, the frame is trying to rip the frame in half. So the piece that we had the rocker mounted to was like a, uh, like a corner piece that connected the seat tube and the top tube, which was really cool because it, um, it kind of strengthened that joint. Um, but when it was welded in, we just welded that corner piece all around and the guys from faction suggested that we actually do the same thing as we did on the gussets on the top tube and create an oval where it meets the seat tube and don't weld it and kind of keep the side of that, uh, rocker pivot mount in tangent with the seat tube longer and, and only weld it on the sides. It was interesting looking at their FEA, whether it could show the the stresses on the frame and like the, the front and back of the tube was under so much tension and compression, but the sides of the tube were really neutral and the same thing with the top tube and down tube, um, welding them on the sides was all good, but welding across them is not something you want to do. So on our production frames, we, we kind of just changed to make the piece more in tangent with the side of the seat tube and not weld it across. And, um, again, are you going to feel it when you ride it? Probably not, but the frame will last longer and be stronger for no other change. So that was one thing we did. We, um, we also had the, the shocks mounted on, uh, like a 90, the piggyback, uh, is, is on a 90 on our latest frames. And, they have like a really short shock extender, um, kind of like the one on the back of the Enduro or the demo that, um, just puts the shock eyelet on a 90 degree. Um, we just did it on the piggyback side and that let us keep the piggyback on the, the bottom. So the heavier part of the shock was mounted to the mainframe instead of moving with the linkage and putting it on a 90 reduce the amount of bend that we needed at the down tube so that we could then like make that CNC one piece bottom bracket piece smaller and not have a bent tube 
the straight tubes are stronger and um, easier to fabricate. So we had that on a 90 and um, we had it with the piggyback kind of towards the chain ring. And I don't know why we decided to do that on the first one. I guess the ease of access to all the adjusters and everything when your bikes in the stand but we learned that the adjusters would get full of mud when you when you rode so like mud would kick up off the front tire and the it, it wasn't a huge deal it was really easy to just spray off but um on a fox shock a lot of times the adjusters would get packed up with mud so on our production bikes we're just kind of reversing that offset and putting it um, towards the non-drive side. So then all the adjusters are facing backwards and they, they won't get full of mud. So little change like that. Um, we're also going to make the head tube instead of a straight 56, 56, we're going to make the bottom cup a 62 and the top a 56 and the bottom cup being 62 lets us go plus or minus. We wanted 10, but in the end, uh, we could only do nine without adding any stack to the axle to crown. Um, when we did 10 with the 5656 head tube, uh, the bearing then sits outside of the head tube and just adds, uh, I think like over 10 millimeters of, uh, distance to your axle to crown, which changes the geometry of the bike. And if you're already towards the bottom of the adjustment on a dual crown fork, you can, um, be limited and then have to like raise your front end to get the plus or minus 10. So 62 was actually, I wouldn't say it's a common size, but it's a, it's a standard size. Um, Cane Creek had the headsets in stock for a straight 62 bottom cup. There's definitely a few bikes out there that use them. Um, so we went with that and then we can get nine, um, plus or minus without adding any stack height. And we didn't do it on the top because I feel like adding 10 mil stack is not as big of a consideration on the top of the handlebar as it is on the bottom to change the axle to crown. So, um, it's really nice on a downhill bike. Like we'll be able to cover so many sizes. Um, I don't think I mentioned it, but we're gonna have a medium and a large frame. The center position on reach on the medium will be 455 and the large will be 485. That's what I ride and being able to go plus or minus nine from there covers from 446 all the way up to 494 in um, five, cause we'll have a five cup and a nine cup in five millimeter jumps. I think it's only 470 that you can't reach from both sides. So you'll be like uh, 464 or 476. I'm, I'm like doing the math cause we planned it all in 10 and then we could only do nine. Uh, but, uh, you could cover such a, a wide range of, uh, sizes with, with just two frames on a downhill bike with a, a straight steer tube on a dual crown fork, which is super cool. So, um, yeah, going to that 62 cup just gave us the space to do that. Um, but really those are like the little refinements, like for me, when I'm riding the bike, well, I notice that, that, that thing is not welded across the center and the shocks flip 90 the other way. And it's a 62 cup, not at all, but it makes the bike just a little bit more refined for production. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And just nice little insight into kind of a lot of the little details that don't necessarily matter for ride quality, but 
do just make a difference in how the bike is to live with and deal with long-term. And, um, a lot of things like the shock adjusters filling up with mud that you, you know, you'd have a hard time thinking of it before you just try it and go, Oh wait, that didn't quite work perfectly. Let's make this little tweak here. So, um, yeah, cool bit of insight there. Would love to hear some more about the different versions that you experimented with, with different frame materials. Obviously you touched a bit on the carbon rear end actually being a little softer than the aluminum one you started with, but you also had that steel front triangle in the mix for a little while. Um, what did you learn from doing all that experimenting and what did you find with those? Yeah, the, uh, I guess with, with the, with the rear triangles, we, um, we sent VIP our aluminum rear triangles and they, along with a complete frame and they could measure the stiffness, uh, uh, like, I, I don't know exactly how they do it. Um, but they have some fixture that they can apply a certain force and measure how much deflection there is at the rear end and, uh, at the rear axle. And, um, they, they thought that our aluminum one was like way stiffer than any one that they ever made. And they shared, I don't know if they were supposed to, but they shared some, some testing from some other bikes that they made that I was familiar with. And they, uh, you could see that the aluminum one that we sent them was a lot stiffer than those. And I was familiar with that. So, we went with something that was kind of more in line with, um, other downhill bikes and that honestly didn't ride that much different for how much percent change it was. Um, I think our aluminum one was like 40% stiffer than the proposed first carbon fiber layup. And I rode them back to back so many times and I didn't notice as big as a, of a difference with that as I expected it to be. Um, the, the carbon fiber rear end was also 800 grams lighter, which is crazy. It's almost two pounds. And, um, that's all unsuspended mass, which should make your suspension move a lot more freely, um, less inertia when your shock goes from compression to rebound. But on the trail, it, it, like for how much I invested into that carbon fiber mold, I was looking for a little more <laughs> and, it luckily did make a bunch of positives <laughs> to the complete frame with like all the alignment it was so perfect on the carbon ones. Um, the, the bearing bores back there were QC'd by VIP and sent to us like ready to go. Um, so it's like when Frank's making the bikes, it's, I want to say easier, but like a front triangle is maybe a little bit more straightforward than, than welding all these small pieces on the rear ends together and being able to take that out of the manufacturing process and they show up stronger, lighter, the better stiffness that we were shooting for and just ready to bolt on perfectly straight. Um, that's a huge plus for being able to make these in production. So, um, after I'd already committed to the mold, uh, we, we were with all those other benefits going that direction with the rear triangle. Then, um, we also got to try those steel front triangles this year, which was super cool. It's an interesting project. Um, Cy Turner from Kodak bikes helped us with those. He uses, um, five land, uh, five land bikes. They're a small manufacturer in Scotland that welds a lot of his UK made frames. I think they weld all his UK made frames and, um, got to talk with those guys and 
they were so cool. Like we visited their shop actually uh, after World Champs at Fort William, and it was almost exactly like Frank's, but in 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 Scotland. So it was like a lot of striking similarities there. And those guys work all in steel and titanium, and Frank works pretty much primarily in aluminum. So it was like the the evils that they knew, and these guys were super helpful with taking like the 3d model of my aluminum frame and trying to make that in steel as close to the ride feel that I was looking for as they could with being able to like highlight some of the attributes of steel. And, um, we went through two versions of it. Um, and I'd, I'd love to do more. Uh, we were, kind of running out of time to I guess I could never stop making changes like this and I could keep like trying one more one more but uh we uh we we got those two versions of the steel frame and I I actually wasn't the first one to ride it because they showed up just after I had broke my pelvis and I was on crutches for three months so I couldn't do the testing then but um my mechanic Ancho wrote it my brother Logan wrote it Asa wrote it um and then my buddy Austin Hackett Cloud, who does uh, ride quality testing for Specialized, he came out and was able, like his boss luckily let him spend a day riding it, which was super nice. Um, they were doing their own testing at my bike park. And uh, I guess as a little thank you, maybe not even to do with that, maybe they was just happy to let him do it. But he said that he could spend one of the days on my bike and give me some feedback on it. Um, but they all like told me that the bike feels more different than they expected. And I was like, man, I got to feel this for myself. Like I, I, in all my testing, I, like I described the rear triangle, like I've not noticed these big changes, especially like sometimes you notice a bigger change going to something, but if you're doing back to back testing, when you go back, sometimes that change wasn't as big as you thought it was the first time. So I was really interested in trying these steel front triangles. And finally, when I recovered and I hopped on it, it was, um, it was as noticeable as they said, like when you, when you get on the bike, it really does feel super comfortable from the first run. A lot of the trail chatter, um, like stuff in between the bigger features, you can just feel less, uh, feedback through your hands and your handlebar. I guess when you're in the rougher stuff, you're like focused on riding that and not uh, every little difference to the bike. But um, the steel just felt so uh, comfortable, I guess is, is the way to put it. Like just, yeah, less through your hands. I did feel like the aluminum had very similar grip to the tires, um, pretty much the same amount of grip, but with just more feedback and it's something that kind of like hooks you in when you first ride it. You're like, wow, this feels great. Um, but the more that I did back, I, I probably swapped those front triangles alone 20 times, like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, that was like midsummer. I, I'd just been off the crutches. So my back was so sore from riding four runs, standing up, changing the front triangle and, uh, riding four bore runs, changing the front triangle. I spent like two weeks just doing that. Got a couple other people's opinion on it too. And, um, like the, the further you pushed it and the harder you went, 
the more the aluminum front triangle was kind of rewarding you like in higher load corners it felt like the steel frame would kind of wind up and and deform and the aluminum one would uh transfer that energy like forwards down the trail um but there was like yeah pros and cons i just felt like and and in doing timed runs as well like the aluminum rewarded pushing harder i think asa said it perfectly it was and it was funny because he was so just like honest and and open when he said it was i think my dad would love this frame <laughs> meaning like uh for somebody that's not trying to like race it and push it super hard it's uh it's a really comfortable bike to ride so as we were trying to make a race bike for he and i we decided to go with the aluminum frame um, but i could totally see why people love these steel bikes they do have a really nice feel to them and i would like to go further with it like we like i said we probably had 10 aluminum versions and only tried those two versions of the steel frame and we didn't really change too much either like we just tried to make it lighter because the first front triangle we had was quite heavy um for just a front triangle i think it was a thousand grams more so we made um a bike that i i raced at fort william which i thought was super cool like the by far the coolest world's bike i've ever had was a raw steel bike with no paint on it that was made in scotland when the world's was in scotland i've had tons of american flags red white and blue bikes um but this one was like by far the most fitting to me i was really proud of it and for that bike we made um we, we took away any adjustment at the head tube so like a steel at that time I, I said we were using the 56 56 head tube we went to just uh 44 44 non-adjustable straight head tube and that saved a bunch of weight in steel and we had the shock mount 3d printed in steel which was pretty cool it um it made it way easier for those guys to build like a lot of times building these uh prototype or like sample frames you have to invest so much into the tooling for it like all the fixtures to hold the frames as they're welded and that costs more than the actual frames do especially when you're making like one to try and then make another one to try um so making that 3d printed shock mount took away like three little pieces that they had to hold together when they welded it that needed to be super accurate and they could just sit that thing right there between the down tube and the seat tube and it would be right in place and save a little weight too. So of the two steel versions we tried, they weren't drastically different. One was just trying to make it a little bit lighter to race on. So I'd like to go further with it. Um, I really owe those guys a, a, a long call to go over it, but that's one thing um, in the future, uh, like, yeah, we're making these production frames now that I think are the best we can with what we know, but, um, I want to learn the things that I don't know yet. And I think going further with that will be a cool project for the future. Yeah, that, that is cool. And the subject of just steel full suspension bikes has kind of been front of mind for me of late because sort of accidentally didn't really necessarily seek this out, but have, wound up reviewing a bunch of them this year and i mean certainly kind of boiling 
ride quality down to just the frame materials not super accurate but um and i of course haven't had the opportunity to ride what's like essentially the same bike in multiple frame materials the way you're just describing but um on a and there's definitely a sort of spectrum of stiffness and feel within the various steel full suspension bikes i've been on too but um a lot of what you said about just them by and large generally feeling really comfortable and muting that smaller chatter really effectively very much checks out from my experience with a variety of them too and uh yeah it's interesting just kind of how it all comes together and um things are kind of fun to play around with and it'll be cool to see if you kind of move forward with a more refined version of that at some point where that all ends up but just need to kind of hear your experience having done a more direct a b of the materials with fewer other variables at play and it's generally kind of in keeping with what i've found too so um that all makes a lot of sense and we've been talking about the dh bike a ton here but you've also got the prototype enduro bike that you've been working on tell us a little bit about that and what the state of that project is yeah that was um something that i've been thinking about for a long time as a downhill racer we probably spend a lot more time riding enduro bikes than we do our downhill bikes um using for training um just going for just general rides for fun too um it you you can't spend all your year riding a downhill bike at full pace so we we use that a lot to work on skills um in a little bit less high risk environment and personally i just i love riding the enduro bikes um i don't love racing them as much but uh, i live in pisgah forest north carolina where we have some amazing trails and a ton of variety um, I've, I've lived here for 10 years and I still haven't ridden all the trails in Pisgah national forest. So there's, there's just a ton of good stuff here. And I've had over the past couple of years, so many different enduro bikes. Um, a bunch of friends of mine have been nice enough to send me some, or, um, I've bought some different bikes and sometimes I feel like I, I think about them too much and it. Uh, I'm sure you have the same where like you're on a, out on a ride, an amazing trail. It's such a good thing. And, and you just stop in every 30 minutes to think about every little tiny detail of the bike instead of just, just getting on and riding it. Like sometimes I, I go through that too much. Do, do you have that too? All the time, man. And I've talked about this on here too, but something that, kind of you know not to complain about this job it's a pretty good one but one thing that is sort of rough sometimes is just well yeah kind of what you're describing of like one not really being able to just go ride and turn your brain off and have a nice time and just thinking about details of the bike and how it's feeling and set up and all this kind of stuff but also i'm just changing between bikes so often that it gets to be hard to have even my own personal bikes that I've owned for a while because I'm switching back and forth between them and stuff that I'm reviewing all the time. It's just hard to have, like end up feeling totally dialed and comfortable on any of them at that point. Cause you're just switching between things that feel different and ride differently and fit differently. And 
never feeling 100% at home on any of them after a while isn't the best. So yeah, that all very much resonates. I'm lucky to where at least I, I can put all my preferred components on them. So I'm just like isolating the frames and like me and my mechanic will go and ride and we'll ride a section and then switch bikes and then ride a section and switch bikes. And it could be like the coolest trail and we'll just stop and complain about everything that's wrong with the bikes. <laughs> and we, we should, uh, so I don't know, it takes, takes away from it sometimes. Um, but all that aside, like I, I wanted to make this enduro bike for a long time. Um, I felt like of the bikes that I could buy, there was just a couple of things that I was really looking for that I couldn't find. Um, and they seem simple to me, but I, I coming from a downhill perspective, I, I like, I want the bike to feel as close to that as I can. And it seems like every enduro bike I ride is like, if you were coming from riding a trail bike, the enduro bike feels good because that's your perspective. But coming from a downhill bike, it just feels bad. Like it doesn't go down the hills as well. A 12 speed drivetrain sounds like you're throwing a toolbox down the hill. It, uh, you can't put the seat down far enough. Um, tons, tons of little things like that. And I, I just wanted the bike to, to like, a big thing was just have good, consistent suspension like a downhill bike has which is challenging in a shorter stroke a shorter amount of travel to deal with that um but then also from a geometry point of view like i wanted to fit one of those really long dropper posts in there like i bought uh i bought a one-up dropper post a 240 mil and i couldn't i I bought it like three years ago and every time i'd get a frame i would be like well this thing fit and it would never fit in any of the bikes that i could that I could buy, but I wanted, (laughs) I wanted that amount of drop. Like I wanted the seat as low as I could get it on my DH bike. When I would race some local enduro races that I've ever done, I would run the, the 200 mil dropper and I would always lower it as far as I could in the frame before I started the stage and then put it back up to climb up to the next one. So I really wanted it to go in further. And, uh, with, with my four bar, like rocker link layout, I, I ideally I would go from the bottom bracket straight up to the seat post, but I could go from the main pivot, which was about on the enduro frames. I think we were 60 mil above the bottom bracket. So we could get a whole lot of seat post insertion more than any for me, for my seat post height, like far more than any dropper post you can buy. Um, like the 240 fit with plenty of space. I could probably fit like a two, 75 if i could get one maybe somebody can make me one but uh i uh i had a ton of space with just going from the main pivot up and what was nice was um as i described that cnc part that holds the rocker link on and kind of joins the top tube and seat tube that sits in front of the seat tube so you didn't have to deal with any suspension pivot obstructing your seat post insertion so that was a really nice thing that um, both made the bike stronger, not having to punch through the seat tube and kind of be that corner joint between the top tube and seat tube and also like give you that insertion that we were looking for. So that, that was a really nice thing on my Enduro bike that I thought worked well. 
And then we pretty much just copied like what we knew from the DH bike, as far as like the tubes that we use the same on the downhill bike that I use. Um, the, the idea of the main pivot was the same. Like obviously the, the locations of all the pivots were completely unique to make it the kinematics we were looking for, for a 160 mil travel enduro bike. But the, the idea of making that all one piece was exactly the same. And in fact, like when we would get the CNC pieces from five dev, I would have to look at them. The only way I could really quickly tell was that there was a little port for the dropper post cable in the CNC piece for the enduro bike and the downhill bike didn't have that. So it was like, they, they while they're different, they look so similar. Um, and I think that was, gave us a head start on making an enduro bike pretty, pretty nice. Um, and one thing that we like, this is, I've only had one sample of it. We've been focused on refining our race bikes and getting those downhill bikes for sale. As I said, like a big goal is to get those delivered to customers pre-season and because of like that focus, there's just not been any more development into the enduro bike right now. Um, as soon as we finish up those, uh, as soon as Frank gets the pieces to start welding, we'll start on a revision. And then when he's done making those downhill bikes for sale, he'll start making some second enduro samples for us. But, um, in the first one, my carbon fiber chainstay didn't fit in the main pivot height and chainstay length that I wanted. Um, the downhill bike being that kind of mid pivot design is pretty high. I think it's like 83 mil above the bottom bracket. And to, that gives it a ton of anti-squat, which is okay for the downhill bike because you're only ever pedaling it sprinting and standing up. So you're like, your center of gravity is way higher, which actually makes the anti-squat lower. So being on a downhill bike, that really high number and then having a O chain to combat the pedal kick is I think worth all the benefits that it presents elsewhere in the kinematics, but on an enduro bike, you're seated pedaling most of the time. Sometimes you're climbing through some stuff where you want a lower anti-squat and, uh, you don't want a ton of pedal kick. And I don't think an O chain, uh, like I, I really like what those guys are doing, but I don't think you should have to have an O chain on your enduro bike to make it work properly. Like it's a nice little added benefit if you want to ride it, but I didn't want to design a bike around it. I wanted it to work with a standard chain ring. So all that to say, getting the main pivot height to get the, those numbers I was looking for our carbon fiber chains, they didn't fit. So I had to run the aluminum one that we, um, we originally made for our downhill bikes. Um, and we're going to work on in this next revision, a new carbon fiber chainstay that will work on both the enduro and the downhill bike. It's a little bit of a refinement. We put the bearings in the chainstay instead of the mainframe, which sits them out a little wider, gives them a stronger position. Um, slight refinement on the cable routing. I've been like a big proponent proponent of external routing, but we're going to put the gear cable through the chainstay, which I think is okay. And I'll defend this because if you're going to take your gear cable off, you're going to change it. I wouldn't want to put a brake cable anywhere inside a frame because if you have a nice bleed on your brake, you don't want to jeopardize that. But, um, it's hard to find a good spot for the gear cable around the chain and with chainstay production. So on that new chainstay, we're going to put the gear cable 
um, it's going to follow the brake cable actually on the non-drive side, go in um, to the chainstay where the bridge is in front of the tire and then cross the chainstay and come out at the derailleur. So it'll be a nice, nice cable routing for that smooth um, arcs for the shifting, but um, kind of keep it in a spot where there's, it goes like through the main pivot. So there's no growth and it's just routed in a very convenient place. Um, and that new chainstay will work on our future downhill bikes. Um, we'll race it next year to prove it and it'll work on the enduro bikes as well. So that was like one thing that the enduro sample we made had to go back to that older downhill chainstay, which also didn't have, um, it didn't have the bend at the chainstay to give good clearance to the cranks. So I was using like a super boost spindle with a downhill offset chain ring to get the chain line back in. It was like a very prototype first sample. Like I knew I kind of shot myself in the foot with not being able to use that carbon chainstay. Um, thought I had checked like clearance for cranks was all good, but like I never went far. Like it taught me the lesson that like when we're designing stuff, we got to like design all the things that we want to use it for and then fit check it to that. Um, not just like hope that it'll work on something in the future and like a chainstay mold alone is like 10 grand. So I, that was my education. That was my course in uh double check. Everything was to lose that money. But, um, that, that was another thing on the enduro bike that kind of just made it feel like a very prototype. And, um, obviously like I, I can say the suspension works really well when you're going downhill, the thing rides awesome. Um, it's just kind of janky around the edges. And I think we can optimize it more for enduro application, um, further than just copying what we did with downhill as far as tubing and stuff goes. It was just like, I wanted that not to be a headache on the first one and be able to feel how the suspension worked. Um, and honestly, I thought I hit that on the head. Asa won the national champs on it, which was super impressive. I put it down to him as a rider way more than the bike, but I don't think the bike held him back at all, which was cool to see. Um, then, he, uh, when he was at Whistler, I wasn't actually there, but one of the guys from pink bike asked if they could ride and review the frame. And I was a little bit nervous because of all the things I described. It was like kind of uh, rough around the edges. Um, and I told them that it was like, Hey, this is a first sample. Just so you know, like, don't judge me. Like uh, I'm trying to sell this thing. And, uh, yeah, I was nervous that they might have some harsh criticisms for some of those things, but, uh, they had honestly a super positive, uh, review on it. I'm glad that I let them ride it. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, with one more refinement of this enduro frame, it'll be really, really good. We'll be able to make it quite a lot lighter without using all the same parts as the downhill bike. Um, it'll be, I don't know, the, the cable routing that we had now is kind of rattly. So we refine that a bit, um, and be able to, uh, yeah, keep that dropper post insertion the way that I wanted it. And I think it'll be a really nice enduro bike. Right on. Yeah. It'd be cool to kind of see the evolution of that. And sounds like you're on a, 
could start with it and just, as we've been saying, the details take a little bit of work, but uh, some kinks to iron out and keep moving forward with it. And is the plan for that to eventually start selling those two once you've got it better refined kind of along the lines of the downhill bike or where are you hoping to go with that? I think so. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot more people out there to be interested in an enduro bike than owning a downhill bike. A lot of people like to watch our project and follow downhill, but there's obviously more people that ride enduro or own those bikes than own downhill bikes. So yeah, I, I think we, we, I would love to offer those as well. Um, and I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't start this to really sell the bikes. It just became, uh, something that a lot of people were interested in, in, and asking for. And, um, something that with, the uh, the money that I put into developing my own frames, um, if people are able to buy them, then that gives us the resource to keep going and keep doing more projects and keep refining the bikes. Um, I can only go so far with it, with the money that I had saved. So, uh, selling bikes, um, gives us some income to continue doing the development. And I, I think the people that buy them will be really stoked with them. I think they can, like they, they know what they're getting. They're not getting scammed. They can see all the, uh, work that we did. And if they, if that, that idea, uh, resonates with them, then I think they'll be stoked with it. And, um, our first, like, it's a big difference between making these bikes for us and even making a production bike and then selling it is like a whole nother process. The business of it, um, executing the delivery, the taking their payments and then delivering on time. So we want to learn that me, me and my brother Logan are doing it together. It's just the two of us. And we want to learn that through this first batch of downhill frames and then based on how it goes, um, we'd love to do the enduro frame after that, if it, uh, if it goes well. Right on. And well, it's been quite a good rundown on the frame development and where you're at with that. We'd love to just do quick kind of bit about the upcoming season before we let you get going here. Um, obviously Asa has been mentioned a bunch throughout, but, uh, you've, kind of got the team growing a little bit over there with him racing for you and so obviously as we also alluded to you didn't exactly have the 2023 season that i'm sure you're hoping for with the broken pelvis putting you on the sidelines for a good while and um you know i mean i guess kind of how are you feeling coming back from that and what are the plans and goals for 2024 yeah, that was uh that was the biggest injury that I had. I um I broke my acetabulum, which is the like hip socket, like where your femur bone goes into your pelvis bone. That socket, um, I sh- uh, the doctor said I shattered it. He said it was like one of the worst ones that he's had to put back together. But he he was he was pretty cool. He actually um mountain bikes himself, the the surgeon who did it, and said that. It, all the pieces like went back like a puzzle, even though it was pretty badly broken. And he thought like it was the best that could have gone back together. So it's really fortunate for that. Fortunate it's not worse. Um, but it's been six months now. I've been three months back on my feet and man, it's taking longer than I thought to, to really feel better. Um, I got to keep plugging away on all the, the PT that I have to do for it as 
well as my training. It was kind of tough. Um, I thought I was giving it enough time to get back to race at the end of the season. Um, but it was, it, it, looking back, it was just challenging to manage like the PT and rest to, to that I needed to do for that with bike time and trying to get back to race. Um, like blending those together was challenging because I would have liked to go deeper in some of the training um, to put muscle back on my left leg, but couldn't sacrifice being super sore. Like anybody's done like squats, um, heavy. And then the wake, wake up the next day, you're, you're smoked. And then you got to ride your bike precisely to train for a race, like a downhill bike. Like as far as technique goes, it's like hard to do when you're super sore from training. So like balancing that, I, like it was hard to do all at once. And I felt like, I don't know. I, I didn't recover as quick as I maybe could have is if I just didn't ride at all and just focused on the hip. And I probably didn't ride as good as I could have if I just focused on, was able to focus on only riding. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do that coming back from the injury. But it was like, I ended up doing both. I wouldn't say half-assed, but like compromised. Um, and the best way that I could have. But... I wanted to get back and do those races at the end of the season. They honestly kept me like sane through this period of um, like, I, I was in the hospital for a whole week and then like laying in a bed for a month and on crutches for three months. And um, again, like super grateful that it wasn't anything permanent or, or like really worse paralyzing or anything like that. Like it was, you can have a bad crash and of course, like there's a ton of risk with it. So I'm, um, I'm glad that uh, it wasn't any worse, but it was a tough time. And like being able to think about coming back and racing at the end of the year motivated me to come back from it. And yeah, with all that said, like, I'm glad that I did it, but now with the winter's off season, I really need to focus on trying to get this hip to feel better. Um, and, and for my own sake, like, even if I never race again, like I, some mornings I feel like I'm a hundred years old when I wake up. And I got to like the, the ones that I do feel better when I put the time into, uh, stretching for longer, um, doing all the, the fine details of the PT work. Um, so yeah, I just got to keep that stuff going and, and, and stay, stay on the hard work with that. But yeah, my goals personally are to definitely race next year. I don't put as much emphasis on my own results when I'm you know, writing to sponsors and telling them about the program that we have. It's not like Nico Malali myself is going to be the one getting you guys podiums at a world cup, but I'm going to be there racing and developing these bikes further, doing more prototype experiments and trying to mentor Asa. And I think that being there myself and being able to hold myself to the standard of trying to race the world cups, um, it gives me, the perspectives to be able to, you know, help with the whole program, whether it's bike side or helping Asa, um, grow into the rider that he's going to become. Um, I think that it helps a lot to be, to, to be racing these, these races. So for myself, I want to do well, I want to try to make some of the finals. It's really tough now with how many fast guys there are and, um, guys that don't have anything else to do, but train and race It's uh, I've put like, I've, make taking the decision to put a lot more on my plate. So, um, it, it's going to be 
hard to do that, but uh, I, I wouldn't trade any of it. I love to do all this stuff. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to next season. Um, Asa is such a talented young rider and he, he kind of came so naturally into the team where last year I offered him a test after the US Open to ride the bike. Um, he loved it and I sent him two frames to, to, to ride for the season. Then this year when I was injured, I tried to take as much of the support that I had for myself for the season and give it to him. My, my mechanic helped him at any race that we were at together, um, at other US races that I went to while I was on crutches. I tried to at least be there at the bottom of the toolbox. I don't know if I'm the best race mechanic, but I was, you know, better than nothing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just try to like give him all the support that I could. And he, he just took it to the next level. And, uh, with me being out and keeping this program going, um, component sponsors that supported me for the season with my frameworks program. Now Asa was riding my bike and able to get some incredibly impressive results with it. Um, it was just like, it, I wasn't out like outwardly looking for uh, somebody to do that. And, and he just came in at the right time and just fit so perfectly. So, um, yeah, super exciting. And I think we got a really good, good, strong team going into next year. Yeah. It's been really cool seeing him develop and start going really damn fast on those bikes and, uh, you know, still super young. So just encouraging to see some young up and coming Americans racing downhill because, um, scene hasn't necessarily been the strongest. We talked about that in one of the prior episodes we did a while back, but, uh, yeah, here's to hoping we can kind of keep that momentum going and get another generation going here. And, uh, ACE seems like a pretty key part of that. So been sweet to see that happen. And I mean, glad to hear the pelvis is, starting to feel better even if there's a ways to go on that those big orthopedic injuries can take a while i um really fully shattered the my tibial plateau kind of the lower half of the knee joint um four and a half years ago now and was back on a riding a mountain bike okay within six months or so but um it just kept getting better over a few years and it it can take a while so uh Hopefully your road on that's not as long as mine was and keeps getting better. But uh, yeah, best of luck with everything. And thanks for coming on here, man. This has been a lot of fun and I think a good insight into what you've been up to with the program and just what it takes to develop a bike or a couple bikes, really. And appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me. Um, anybody listening who who was interested in finding out more about our frames um we we set up a website rideframeworks.com and we created a, a newsletter that you can sign up for and i've been communicating i think we sent two out so far just explaining exactly how much the frames are going to cost um when the pre-orders are going to be open and it's really nice to be able to give more information to people through an email that have already expressed interest than me like posting on my Instagram to people who maybe they want to follow me to see trail building or mountain biking and 
they're not really there to buy something. So I can, I can give like a ton of details on, on actually selling the frames through our, our newsletter. So, and hopefully we can sell them all to the people in the newsletter. Um, so anybody who is listening to this and interested, please visit our website or sign up for the newsletter. And that's where we have all the information. Sweet. Yeah. We'll throw a link to that in the show notes too. So folks listening can hit that up and, uh, well, Nico, thanks again. This has been awesome and best of luck with getting the production frames out and the rehab over the off season here and everything else you're up to and looking forward to seeing you back between the tape when racing gets going again in the spring. So thanks again. This has been great. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Nico for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.